Well, thank you, Bob Marley, and thanks to all of you tuning in today. This is Radio Free Canada again. I'm your host, Kevin Annett, and we're back as always, itccs.org. Follow the work every Sunday here at 3 p.m. Pacific, 11 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. And I am very honored and pleased to have with me today as my guest, Judy Byanton, who is a retired therapist and counselor with Cultural Abuse Survivors in America. She's based in the Western States. She's going to be talking to us today about her experience in not just treating victims of satanic ritual crimes, but actually helping to track down where these satanic cults operate from and the backlash that she's experienced for doing so. Very similar to other counselors like our friend Sandra Fecht in Canada, who's faced the same attacks. Now, this is happening today, of course, in the wake of great news coming out of Europe. For the first time in history, satanic cult members of the Ninth Circle have been arrested and stopped. We have saved the lives of eight children in France, in Holland, and Switzerland. I'm going to sum up that report today that was just received from our tribunal office in Europe this last week. It came out May 5th on Friday. And then um, around quarter after the hour, we'll have uh, Judy come on. Also, I want to urge people to follow up on what you learned today. Write republicofcanat at gmail.com. Volunteer for our volunteer sheriff training programs in the common law. We're going to have a little uh, report at the end of the hour about next week's show involving our group in Toronto that's actually accrediting themselves as common law sheriffs, and they're going to be leading direct action campaigns in their community. I'll be mentioning that at the end. So we can do something, and we will. This is the purpose of the show today, to educate and to mobilize. Well, if you read itccs.org, you'll see in the latest posting this notice that came out. And I wanted for those who haven't read it, I urge you to go to it, because a lot of the details are in there. For background, the Ninth Circle is a satanic cult that was exposed over the last few years from several eyewitnesses in Holland who are former cult members or had been co-opted into it. Ninth Circle is at least 300 years old. It's run right out of the Vatican and involves top papal officials, including popes and cardinals. Now, the Ninth Circle we've been on the hunt for for a number of years. On the basis of having informants now coming forward, we were able to locate a number of cities where these attacks occurred, these uh, cult ritual killings on April 30th of children. We broke up three of them in Wale, Holland, in Dijon, France, and Lucerne, Switzerland. Our teams, assisted by local police for the first time, went in and arrested 19 cult members. We freed eight children. Five of those children were uh, actually nationals from France or Holland. They were citizens, children who were six years old or under, being literally held in cages, and they'd been beaten and starved. Three of the children were immigrants, uh, either from Tunisia or Romania. All eight were freed. They're now in the custody of either their families who were they were returned to or independent safe houses until they can find proper families outside the system because we know that the so-called child welfare system in many countries, including Europe and North America, 
they are the conduit of children into the Ninth Circle and other ritual um, abuse networks. The 19 Celt members, uh, as we speak, are still in the custody of police in those three countries. And the police were able to recover evidence of cult activity at the arrest sites, including satanic regalia, blood-stained torture devices, and children's clothing. And even in the case of Zwale Holland, the physical remains of dead and mutilated children were found, found in cold room containers. Now, the reason the remains are held, of course, is part of the Ninth Circle ritual is cannibalism, and those children's remains would be used in, in other rituals. All of that was photographed and videoed and uh, by our team, as well as the police. There were two separate records. And we also uh, got several of the cult members to come forward and agree that they would turn evidence against others in the cult. So that's a very important step. It means their system is cracking apart. And the one thing people in those kind of secret societies fear is when their own members start coming forward and talking. And that's why this is such an important step on so many fronts. The important thing is those eight little children are alive tonight thanks to the actions of the ITCCF team and the police who stood with them, which was another first. The bad news, of course, is that in the other cities, they, uh, there was such protection that the teams couldn't penetrate it or the uh, rituals had been moved to other sites. These cities were Rome, London, Paris, Frankfurt, Brussels, and Geneva, as well as the Opus DA Catholic Center in Terra, Ireland. Now, that tells you that traditionally these were important uh, centers for the Ninth Rich Circle uh, cult. And uh, adding on to that is what happened in North America, which was, I guess you could say, disastrous. In the three spots that we had targeted with our teams, in Washington, D.C., and Montreal and Vancouver, Canada, all of those teams were shut down by the police. They were arrested, and by plainclothes policemen, not by police, plainclothesmen who weren't identified and never identified themselves. The, uh, our people were held overnight. All of them have been released except one uh, in Vancouver, and we're, we're doing our best to find out where that person is. Um, and what's interesting is the one of our sources in the Ninth Circle have told us that the, the Circle have seriously been considering and, in fact, are planning to move their operations from Europe over to North America. Now, the fact that the North American actions by ITCCS were so quickly shut down suggests that, yes, they are very concerned about any action to expose the Ninth Circle in North America. Uh, and related to that is the fact that, and some very important news, is that um, two things. First of all, the very uh, two days after these actions, a, the executive council of the ITCCS received a back-channel communication from a party claiming to represent an element within the Roman Catholic Curia, the so-called College of Cardinals. The party carried a message requesting a meeting between so-called influential officials at the Vatican and the ITCCS leadership. The, the executive said in response that they would meet, provided the, it occurred outside of Italy and was subject to monitoring and recording in the presence of their security staff and legal counsel. That was the ITCCS response, and they're still awaiting a reply. Related to that, another important development is the fact that we talked about the, the, the Ninth Circle moving to North America. Well, a possible, very probable location for the relocation from uh, the Club Lorraine and a Chateau in Belgium, where they were previously based, is the area between Montreal and Ottawa, Canada. And we know it's a heavy area in terms of uh, satanic ritual killings, 
as well as MKUltra mind control programs run by the military. And there's a direct link between the military and these satanic ritual killings, which we'll talk about. But um, related to that is the fact that the top Catholic cardinal in Canada, Gérald Lacroix, had, was, according to our source, near the Ninth Circle, was present at two Ninth Circle gatherings in Brussels and Rome this past March. Now, Gérald Lacroix was already named he, um, as participating in a Ninth Circle ritual on February 22, 2014, at the San Lorenzo Jesuit Church in Rome, along with Pope Francis Jorge Bergoglio and uh, Danny LaBelle, who was a federal cabinet minister in the former government of Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Now, what's interesting is both uh, Lacroix, this Cardinal Lacroix, was appointed by a convicted criminal, deposed Pope Joseph Ratzinger, who as a uh, young man was a member of the the Knights of Darkness, uh, SS, satanic cult himself. So all of these, uh, all of this indicates that yes, not only is it active in, in Canada and there's a direct link to the Roman cults, but that could be a possible place where the Ninth Circle could be moving. Now, of course, in response, there's been a counterattack, not just on the councillors who are trying to legitimate the whole issue of satanic ritual crimes, but against our three field secretaries, including myself and the field secretary for Europe and Australia. Apparently, all of us, again, have been targeted for disruption by the Holy Alliance, even for elimination, according to the source. And so uh, we're all taking the necessary protective measures, but this is not something new. These threats have come down before. And uh, it's only a sign, brothers and sisters, that we're having such a tremendous impact. That's the important update. And um, just related to that in the few minutes before we bring uh, Judy on, is the fact that we have to remember that Satanism by itself, is a, like genocide, is a tool of church and state and has been for many centuries. And we found, for example, and I want to flag this for future shows, one of the uh, new developments in Europe is we're forming a common law court in Serbia, to look into the Vatican-led genocide of the Serbs, the Jews, and the Gypsies in Croatia during the 1930s and 40s, a program like the Indian residential schools in Canada that was run directly out of the Vatican using Vatican personnel. These Catholic priests were running the death camps, forming the death squads. They killed almost a million people in the Jasanovich concentration camp. Well, clearly, satanic ritual killings were present in all of these death camps, and they're closely tied to the post-war satanic ritual killings tied to the CIA, who brought over many of these Nazis through Project Paperclip. Because the basic um, purpose of many of these satanic ritual killings at an energetic level was to identify the energy patterns of human beings and capture them. Uh, The pattern of fear of of other uh, things that could then then literally be used as energy weapons. And this has been actually documented by former insiders, and we'll talk about that more as well. So that's some of the background to today. I want to um, bring on Judy now, Judy Byington, a former therapist, speaking to us from Utah, and uh, I'll uh, bring her on now. Hello, Judy. Hi, Kevin. It's good to hear you again. It's really good to hear you, as always. And, um, you know, I'm not sure how many of our listeners know about you, so why don't you give a little bit of a background, you know, your books and how you came into the whole field of, of, you know, ritual abuse. I had spent uh, part of my life being a uh, therapist, and uh, I was a supervisor of mental health for Alberta Mental Health, and then I was uh, over Family Counseling Center in Provo, Utah. Um, I had a daughter who became quite ill, and I had to retire quite early. Uh, While I was a therapist, uh, people would come in and uh, say such things 
to me as I can't remember my childhood and uh, I, what we know is disassociation. Um, but at the time, I didn't recognize what was really going uh, on. Um, after I retired, uh, two uh, cousins, uh, grown women, came to me and uh, wanted some help because one of their fathers was under arrest by the Utah Attorney General um, for uh, rape of one of her uh, sisters, uh, one of the sisters. There were several uh, women in the family uh, that he uh, actually raped throughout their lives, but they just were trying him for uh, for molest of one of the children. Um, and they wanted they they had uh, started to have repressed memories uh, because of his arrest, and they hadn't seen these were cousins and they hadn't seen each other since childhood, and uh, they ran into each other in a shopping mall one day, and uh, realized that they were having some of these same repressed memories, um, and so they came to me and asked me for my help because they wanted him charged with more than just, you know, the molest of one child. Um, so I spent about a year with them, and uh, I worked with the Utah Attorney General uh, Special Investigators for Ritual Abuse. And um, anyway, that's that's how I initially became involved. Um, the uh, trial actually went nowhere. Uh, we found out through a lot of investigation that this man was actually a satanic coven leader for uh, all of Utah and all the way over west to Garden Grove, California, uh, down to Arizona. And uh, we had, I had gone out with these women to different sites where they had uh, claimed to have seen murders and had been raped by both of their fathers. Um, and uh, we gathered all this information. We actually connected up with five missing children here in Utah. And I took all this information back to the Utah AG office. Uh, the bottom line is they didn't use this in court, and uh, the man got off on a quirk of the law. Uh, so I was very frustrated with this, so I started taking the information around to different legal entities, and I went. one of the persons I approached was an FBI agent. The same day I approached him, uh, Jenny Hill uh, approached him, and she, was, she had been ritually abused as a child, and uh, had been to a satanic ceremony where they murdered another little girl. And she was trying to find the parents of the little girl uh, that was murdered. And uh, so she approached this FBI agent asking for some help. The bottom line is uh, he uh, refused to open up a case for either one of us, Um, but he did put us together. And then I spent... uh, about almost 20 years with Jenny um, and writing her biography. It's called 22 Faces Inside the Extraordinary Life of Jenny Hill and Her 22 Multiple Personalities. Um, It was very interesting for me and quite an education for me to work with Jenny because as a child, uh, she was really confused about why she disassociated uh, that is, she would go from one minute to another or one hour to another and not remember what happened in between. And um, so she began writing journals, 
and she had kept these journals throughout childhood and adulthood, and then eventually she ended up in the Utah State Hospital, and they encouraged her to write in there. And as she would write in her journals, her alter personalities would take over, and they would write down very specific experiences of what happened uh, to her. Um, and so it was a great education for me to work with her and to read these journal writings and uh, to write her book. But that's the bottom line of how I got right. involved in all this. <laughs> for people who are new to this whole topic, why do children split off into multiple personalities when they're undergoing such horrible trauma at a young age? It's called um, dissociate identity disorder. It used to be uh, called uh, multiple personality disorder in the psychiatric manual, but uh, there was an organization of actual ritual abuse therapists that were able to get that diagnosis changed to dissociate identity disorder. We all disassociate. Um, daydreaming is a perfect example. Uh, often, you know, sometimes in meetings or in school, you know, I would get bored with what was going on and I would just start. You know, right. thinking in other directions. That's one end of the spectrum is daydreaming. Kind of in the middle is post-traumatic stress disorder, and that's, uh, you know, commonly uh, found with veterans of war. Uh, my father, for instance, uh, suffered from that because he was in World War II. He was a little farm boy from Idaho that was forced into the war and uh, had to kill a man, and uh, he had to go through some of the concentration camps after the Nazis left, in fact, he had the uh, picture of uh, Eisenhower and Patton together looking at a shed where all these bodies were stacked up, and uh, he took this picture. Uh, but he came back from the war um, very, very uh, dissociated, and he would have these flashbacks. All the flashbacks were were the mind trying to heal from the trauma, uh, right. trying to uh, process, because when he... When he had these traumatic experiences during the war, he, his mind handled it, so they repressed the memories. And so anyway, that's yep. post-traumatic stress. Oh. And then in the far end of the spectrum yeah. is um, multiple personality disorder. Oh. Now, that only happens to children because it has to do with the developing brain of the child, and it only happens to a child who is undergoing prolonged trauma. Um, Kind of think of your mind as a tree, and the trunk of that tree is your core personality, and the branches are different memories that you've developed. And out there, as you have a traumatic experience, you know, as you have a tra when you when you think or when you go through experiences, your your brain creates little neurons, and they hook onto each other. Well, what happens with a traumatic experience <clears throat> that the mind doesn't want to, you know, handle? They will create the little neurons of the little right. uh, thoughts out there, but they won't connect to the core personality. It's, it's, a, it's called a repressed memory. And those repressed memories will stay with that person uh, okay. for long periods of time until they get into a safe situation. And, that's, and, and uh, so that's why some of these uh, children who have gone through trauma it can be 20, 30 years later when these repressed memories will come back. And right. that was what happened to these women that I was working with, is that they didn't have these memories until they saw certain things that reminded them of the experience, and then the memory would come back, and the mind, uh, when it was in a safe situation, could then process that, that trauma. Well, relating this back to the whole, your discovery of these satanic networks, uh, I know reading the literature on 
MKUltra, the CIA mind control programs, they need children in a and create children in these dissociated states for experimental reasons to create sleeper agents to, to probe the human mind in that. So what I'm wondering, what you discovered with these satanic networks, is that same deliberate element there? Were they deliberately doing this to children, like showing them the murder of other children in that, to make them pliable, to make them members of the cult? How exactly does that work? Um, that's exactly how, the, how mind control works. In, in Jenny's case... Uh, she was uh, raped by, uh, she claims that she was raped by her father uh, almost on a daily and at least a weekly basis all through childhood from the time she was very, very little. And I hear this a lot from ritual abuse survivors, is that rape uh, during childhood is a common experience for them. And it's usually by somebody that's very close to them, uh, and if it's a you know father figure, you know it's even more traumatic. But that experience will then start to split those um, those thinking patterns that they have into, you know, various patterns. For instance, I know of a uh, ritual abuse survivor whose uh, mother, when she was in the womb, they they uh, would give her the mother shock treatments. And that, she doesn't know how many, how many personalities she has. So I have thousands of thought patterns because I began to split in the womb. But that's what they do, is they give these traumatic experiences to these children at a very young age and on a very regular basis where the child knows that they cannot get out of the situation and they just have to deal with it, you know, on a minute-to-minute basis in order to live life. Well, uh, once that child has started to, you know, split, uh, then it's much easier for uh, mind control Uh, efforts to take place because they already have the different uh, personalities forming in them. For instance, uh, when they when they rape a child, uh, they will name that personality that forms during the rape, you know, to handle the experience of that rape. And that that name in mind control is is beta. And so anybody that realizes that this person is a multiple. Uh, they can call forth that personality just by naming the name, Beta. Right. It's beta, mm-hmm. beta come forward, and then that personality will come forward, and that's how they control. That's that's the mind control that they do right. in order to, you know, yeah. um, you know, control these little children yeah, and, and well, on through life, actually. Now, tell us some of your, uh, you know, of course, without naming the names of, of your patients and that, um, some of the experiences they had as victims of these satanic cults. How do these cults operate? Why do they get so much protection from police and authorities? Well, and unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, authorities that are into um, satanic worship. Uh, it's a power thing. Uh, they do it uh, to gain power and prestige or whatever. Um, and so uh, when I was working <clears throat> uh, with this um you know, trying to get information on this satanic coven leader, uh, I was very innocent to the fact that some of the people that I was actually talking to were actually coven, you know, people uh, involved in the occult. And uh, they will use their power and prestige to cover up the information. For instance, right. we, I worked with these two women for um, over a year, and we'd go out to different coven sites. Uh, we would uh, connect up the murders and, and identify the victims. And I had all this information that I took back to the Utah Attorney General's office. They did absolutely nothing with it. 
even though they had the Colvin leader on trial, and these were ritual abuse investigators that had been hired specifically to do that. And it wasn't them uh, that, you know, stopped this from coming into court. It was it was superiors over them that stopped right. it from coming to court. So you have people in, in uh, very powerful positions that are stopping this information from coming forward. I mean, you certainly know this, and yep. you never see stuff about this in the regular news media because there are powerful people in the occult that own the news media and prevent it from coming out. Now, by you say the higher powers in Utah, that would be the state attorney general's office? Uh, I found that there was a specific person at that time at the Utah attorney general's office that was preventing uh, this information from being taken to court. Yes. And that was a realization that I, I came to after trying to work with them for several years. Uh, I did eventually start working with uh, a man called Captain Hostler. He was over special investigations for the state. And Hostler actually called me into his office and asked me to start working with him. And he told me at that time, he said, nobody knows except there was one other person, you know, over him that knew that, you know, I was working with him. But he says, nobody else knows about this, and they're not going to know all the time that we work together because they knew themselves that people, you know, were connected with the occult in their in their office. Uh, and that that's the problem that you have is that uh, you don't know who's in the occult and who's not. You know, you have to be very careful about what you do. You know, this is like the Serpico film where <laughs> the one honest cop in Brooklyn couldn't find anyone to help him, right? Mm-hmm. And he got uh, he got seriously attacked for being the one honest cop. And I want to eventually get to that about the the repercussions you face. But I wanted to ask you first: um, Can you name the name of this Satanist who was on trial, or do you want to do that? Uh, I I don't think it would be wise to do that because of the victims uh, and the things that I like to talk okay. about. Just checking. Uh, what but, about some but of the... he was, but yeah. when they, uh, you know, there's kind of a, do you want me to tell you a little story about how these special investigators got uh, hired? Sure. Um, what happened in Utah uh, was, oh, I think it's happening all over the United States, it's just that people aren't taking notice, is that there were therapists who uh, were realizing that there were a lot of ritual abuse uh, victims coming to them and saying, you know, I have been abused throughout my childhood. I have seen murders. I have, you know, been raped and that. Nobody will believe me. I need help. I need therapy. And so we had a lot of therapists in Utah, you know, saying, what do we do with this? The American Psychiatric Association wouldn't recognize it. They didn't have any therapies, you know, to deal with it. And that's a whole other story having to do with MK Ultra and all the CIA stuff. But um, but there was an association that started called the... Uh, International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. And they they were a group of therapists. It's now, you know, hundreds of therapists now. Uh, it's a very good association, but they said, we need to get therapies going for, for this. And so they formed. While they were forming, uh, they realized that there were just literally thousands of people across the United States that were, you know, being ritually abused. This same thing happened with the LDS Church Family Services Association. They have, you know, a counseling arm called LDS Family Services. What's the LDS for listeners? Oh, excuse me, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
Okay. Uh, and it's coming called the LDS or Mormons, um, and it's centered here in Utah. Well, they have um, offices all across the United States and in, in Mexico and Canada, uh, and, and women were coming, mainly women, were coming to them and saying, you know, we've been ritually abused. At the time, uh, uh, President Benson, uh, Ezra Tapp Benson, was president of the church, and he used to be uh, uh, Secretary of Agriculture under Dwight D. Eisenhower. But he was president of the church at the time, and at the very same time that this was happening, he was getting reports from LDS Social Services about this. He grew up in a little town in Idaho, and in this little town there was a ritual abuse case where a baby was found that had been half-burned and the organs missing and all that, and it's called the Baby X case. And that case came into the news, and it was a you know a ritually abused baby. Uh, and so he had that information, and he had, had all this information coming from the different counselors. So he ordered a study to be done, and it's called the uh, 1990 LDS Report on Ritual Abuse. And they spent an entire year, and they went out and interviewed uh, a lot of ritual abuse survivors. And then uh, Elder Glenn Pace, who was a uh, hierarchy in the church, he uh, was head of this committee, and he wrote up a report and sent it to President Benson. Um, I have been given the only interview uh, Elder Pace has ever given on this report. In this report, it was stated 45 members witnessed human sacrifice. And when a copy of this report got Excuse me? 45 LDS members witnessed Yeah, 45 members of the church have stated they have seen human sacrifice. And when that that report got put on the Internet, and when that hit the Internet, they just had a barrage of, you know, calls coming into the church. And, of course, they wouldn't uh, deal with that because they don't like to get into political stuff. But what they did was they put all this information together and then they sent it over to the uh, Utah Attorney. They had actually hired a genealogist uh, who would trace the, the lineage of the perp- perpetrators that were named uh, because this generally comes down in what they call multi-generational satanic families where right. uh, generally the father will, you know, risk yep. abuse, use usually the oldest child, and sometimes the other children too, and then it just gets handed down generation to right. generation. So they were... Yep tracing the generations to find all the perpetrators. So they traced all this stuff and, and uh, handed it over to the Utah Attorney General. Well, at the same time they were doing the LDS report, they also did a second report on uh, counselors and therapists and investigators and uh, whatever in the state that were dealing with ritual abuse. And they did their own report. They put these two reports together and found a lot of the very same information. Um, Did the state ever act on it? Yes. uh, That's when they uh, went to the state legislature. They got the money to hire these satanic ritual abuse investigators. These investigators were hired, and their very first arrest was this man that, uh, you know, I ended up uh, trying to investigate. And uh, so we know that he was arrested because they knew that he had been involved in in uh, satanic ritual abuse, but was yet when they finally him, got the thing to court, did he do any time? Uh, no, no. When they finally got it to court, uh, they wouldn't put in any information about ritual abuse in the, in the in the court. 
They only uh, tried him for molest of one child, and he got off on a quirk of the law. So Did the judge still exclude out. the evidence about satanic rituals? Uh, say that again. I'm sorry, I didn't. Did the judge in that trial actually exclude evidence related to satanic rituals? No, the the uh, Utah Attorney General's office wouldn't bring the evidence in. They oh, refused kidding. to bring oh, it in. That's God. what we were pushing in them for okay. an entire year to do, and they they wouldn't they wouldn't bring it in. All right. Um, you know, so in other words, that's how more blatant can you get, eh, Judy? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, one thing I want to ask too. Um, that's all very informative. You know, it kind of shows us the lay of the land. Um, I know you couldn't mention the guy's name. Can you mention any of the sites in Utah that are covens that you suspect, like the towns, just for the safety uh, of people? Yeah, there there are eight. Uh, this is what the uh, special investigators told me, that there are eight satanic covens in Utah. There's one up in the Logan area. There's uh, one, uh, one in Ogden, I believe. Uh, there's two in Salt Lake. There's two in Utah County. And there's two in southern Utah. And when I was doing my investigations, these these women who had uh, been to these different satanic events, they'd go to they'd go to a murder of a child about once a year, and uh, they uh, talked about specific areas in like Alpine, Utah, in uh, Scipio, Utah was a was a big place. There's there's two uh, different sites in Scipio. There's a house in town, and there's a farm outside of town where uh, it's still owned by by the Colvin, and they still have their little ceremonies there. Uh, that was some of the ones that I would try and stop. As I'd, I, I'd, know, I'd know the specific date of, of when they were going to do this, and I'd just go down there and show up. And uh, right they would see somebody was watching them, then they would you know, break, kind of break up the ceremony. But that was the yeah, only right. way I had for doing that. Scipio, uh-huh. that's spelled S-C-I-P-I-O? S C I P I O, yeah. In Utah. Now tell us, I, I don't want to run out of time here and, and not mention um, what's happened to you in the wake of that. I know you had, uh, you were being attacked by people publicly in that. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, the backlash you faced? Yes, I was, I was really surprised at the backlash. I shouldn't have been, but I was. Um, when my first, when first my book came out, uh, there was just, kind of a normal reaction to it in that um, I would get a, uh, it was on, put on Amazon, of course, and then I'd get, you know, really good reviews on it, and then I'd get a review every once in a while that was a one-star review that was very negative, and, it was, and all the one-star reviews were kind of written all, all the same and anything. Small world. And yeah. then, and then yeah. we got, um, and then I, I decided, uh, Jenny was a typical uh SRA survivor who was trying to get treatment and and the mental health uh, does not have treatment for multiple personalities and uh, and they they would drug her okay. up and uh, and so I decided oh Dr. Phil would be a good show to put her on and we could get her some treatment and get her evaluated and you know do do whatever so I wrote into the Dr. Phil show um, I said you know I I've written this book about Jenny Hill, and and she's being drugged up, and and we, I would really like to get her evaluated. I, and my goal was to get her down to Dr. Ross's clinic. Dr. Colin A. Ross uh, was one of the. Um, he's a psychiatrist, and he's probably a world-renowned expert on ritual abuse. 
and he wrote the foreword to my book, 22 Faces. He, he runs um, ritual abuse uh, treatment centers in Texas and California and Michigan. And I wanted to get Jenny into his treatment because he tr- specifically treats ritual abuse survivors, and he does an extremely good job. So that was my goal, to write Dr. Phil and say, hey, you know, could we get her down yeah. to Dr. Ross? So I, I did that, and uh, we went through several months. Uh, they were interested, and they had me do an evaluation and, and send in social summaries on the family and everything and all the problems involved, and, and I did that. And then we got the call to be on his show. We go down there, and right before I start to walk on air, the producer uh, comes and, and puts me aside and says, number one, uh, doc, uh Dr. Phil has not read your book. Number two, I have read the book and I don't believe it. Uh, and number three, we're not going to give Jenny treatment. Oh and God. then they shoved me onto the stage. Slam dunk. <laughs> and so when Jenny and I got through filming the show, and we spent down, you know, several days down there filming it, when we got through and on our way home, we both turned to each other and they said, what on earth were we there for? What did we do? Uh, because the actual filming of the show, he didn't really, you know, do much of anything. Um, I found out later that they cut and pasted and, you know, did all kinds of things to make me look like a manipulating therapist who Mm -hmm. was taking advantage of her clients. That was the purpose of the show, Um, which was really upsetting to me because I was never Jenny's therapist. And yet they portrayed me as her therapist on on on. Why did they misrepresent you? What forces do you think were brought to bear on them? uh, Well, I think it's uh, you know it's entertainment for one thing. Um, I've also have not heard good things about Dr. Phil from ritual abuse survivors, Um, and I can't say a lot about that except there. I have on on our uh, website. Uh, we have two letters on there. They're called Open Letters to Dr. Phil. One was written by Jenny, one was written by me, and it gives a pretty detailed explanation of what actually happened and what we feel happened. Uh, also, he has had, um, I know of three multiple personalities had on his show. One was Jenny, uh, one was about a year before we went on, and one was about a year after we went on. All three have had very bad experiences. Um but- what kind of show. experiences? You mean he's critical of them? He what what happens? Well, one uh that was the year before we went on, uh she said that he uh told her he was going to get her evaluated by a psychiatrist. And you know, she was she was a multiple and she knew she was multiple and she just wanted some help just like Jenny and and he actually did send her to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist says you're not multiple and then he turned around and made uh, this woman pay for her trip, you know, to, to get evaluated. Um, and I don't know what happened to the other one a year later, because by then I was so mad at Phil, I couldn't stand to watch the program. But I heard that that was a very bad experience for her also. Okay. And then right on our show, he said, I have never seen a multiple personality. Essentially, he was saying, I don't believe you. You know, she's not Oh, multiple. my God. And even though true. he'd had a multiple on his show the, the year before. Yeah. And so... You know, I have some real questions about him, but uh, during uh, when the show was aired, um, I had fifty one-star reviews come in within three days of it airing, right. yep. and all 
all the one-star reviews were written like they were one or two sentences. They were kind of all written by, you could tell they were written by the same yeah. person. Yeah. Um, but they were all under, you know, different uh, emails and that. Uh, yeah. And so I'm there was a very know, uh, big effort to make sure that my book did not get good ratings right. on Amazon. One of my uh, guests I had on a few weeks ago, Dave Staffan, was a survivor of, of these cult rituals, and he talked about how quickly you get targeted and smeared publicly. And the people doing it, of course, are actual cult members, and he named some of them. Um, there is a fellow, I don't know if you want to mention his name, but you said to me, he's out of Oklahoma, he's a prominent Satanist, and... Oh, he's... yeah, this, well, yeah, his name is Douglas Masico, and his, his, uh, that's his real name. He goes by Doug Mesner. On the internet, he also goes by Lucian Graves, and Luce, under Lucian Graves, he calls himself head of the Satanic Temple. And uh, he wrote uh, an open letter to Doctor Phil before we went on the show, and really, you know, put me down and degraded me and da 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 through that whole thing. But he is very active in this whole situation. He wrote a a coloring book for children that he got into the schools down in Florida that uh, promotes Satanism. And uh, he was the one that built the statue of Satan with the little girl sitting on Satan's lap that he tried to, uh, down in Oklahoma, you know, they had the Ten Commandments at the courthouse. They were they were saying, you know, it's unfair to have the Ten Commandments there. You know, you have to have other religions, so we're going to put oh, yeah, a religious freedom statue. Yeah. yeah. And then there's another uh, instance where he... Uh, something about a pastor and that he didn't like and, and the pastor's wife passed away and on her grave he went down there and took out his manly organ and, and uh, had a picture of it uh, on this statue there with two sexy women on either side and it got published in uh, some newspaper I can't remember anyway he's so quite a character thing, Judy, like, how does this guy get to get comic books into the schools in Florida. I mean, you only do that if you've got the school board and local politicians on board. Correct. So what's this guy's reach? Why is he able to do that, do you think? Well, I think he's paid by Soros. And uh, I think he works with a group of people who uh, their full-time job is to uh, denigrate and and, uh, and try to put down anything that has to do with uh, therapists dealing with ritual abuse or other people trying to deal with it. Well, yeah, um, just like in Canada, they're going after anyone uh, who's mm -hmm. addressing this issue. But um, Soros, you mean George Soros? George Soros, billionaire. yeah. When I got all these negative comments on Amazon, uh, and it wasn't just the negative reviews. I mean, they were writing thousands and thousands of negative comments. And if you go into Amazon and look under 22 Faces Reviews and read some of those reviews, whether they're good reviews or bad reviews, they'll have just all these thousands of negative, negative comments. Yeah. You know, I thought, how do people do all this? So I was trying to make a, uh, a uh, complaint to Amazon uh, about everything that they were doing to me uh, on there. And so I did a lot of research on it, and I found that they were very, very organized in certain um, areas, and, and one was in on the East Coast and one was on the West Coast, yeah. where these emails were coming from. So um, That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Just a side point on that, Judy. The same things happened to my books, especially Murder by Decree, my book about genocide in Canada that touches on a lot of the things we're talking about. I found the same thing. I did research. It was all coming from the East Coast. So what do you think that is? 
Oh, I think it sources organization. I think it's very well-paid people that are doing this. Why do, why do you say George Soros? Because we, he has been named as a participant in the Ninth Circle by several eyewitnesses. But why, why, is your, why are you saying him? Because uh, when I, when I um, researched uh, these this organizations that were doing this to me, I found that they were owned by George Soros. Really? Well, yeah, it's interesting. He runs Human Rights Watch as well. Like, he's got all these front human rights groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what, let's step back for a minute and just look at all this. Well, what do you think is the way, what can ordinary people do to fight this? I mean, what's, what's your vision on this in our last... Well, uh, my, <clears throat> my emphasis is to save the children, and, and what you have done uh, is just really a breakthrough to be able to actually uh, find children who are being ritually abused and save them from it. Uh, but I think being able to recognize... Um, a ritually abused child, and then doing whatever is necessary to try and protect that child um, is very, very important. And disassociation, I think you get a good feel of what a dissociated child acts like if you read 22 Faces. Uh, It's on 22faces.com on the Internet. Um, You have to write the number. Because because I take her as a young child, and she's dealing with all these alter personalities, and she jumps from one event to the next. And even her teacher, who is really trying to help her, doesn't recognize, you know, that this is an abused child. So uh, even if it's not a ritually abused child, just an abused child, to be able to recognize uh, that they are going through abuse and then, you know, follow through and, and try to get them out of that situation. Right. Unfortunately, these ritually abused children are being abused in their own homes uh, by their parents, and parents can be very, very good at covering it up. Well, you know, Judy, I keep Although getting... I do, I will tell you that these women that I worked with way back then, the wife of that Colvin leader didn't have a clue that he was involved in the occult, and they were married, oh, yeah. I think, for 23, 25 years. Very intelligent, very beautiful, very wonderful women. And so they, they are just so cunning that they, they can do this oh, yeah. right in front of everybody, and, and people don't realize what's going on. Well, the disbelief factor helps them a lot, but uh, like you say, there's lots of protection behind this. Um, and our, we've got about three, four minutes left before I have to do the sign-off, but uh, tell me, just and uh, listeners, contact information, websites. I think you spelled 22... Um, is it the number 22, not writing out 22, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The number is 22faces.com. And uh, I also have another website called childabuserecovery.com, and that has a lot of uh, information on it, including the articles that I've written for the ITCCS uh, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the different organizations. There's a lot of different organizations trying to help the ritually abused, um, and one is this uh, International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. They're very good therapists there, and they are very dedicated to to try to help people. Um, okay, that's the international. Our mental, our mental health uh, is completely on the other side, as far as I'm concerned. I, right, uh, the American Psychiatric Association. They're all lined yeah. up against any of this. Okay, um, right. could, could you name the same the name of that society again? The International. The International Society for the Study of Trauma and Disassociation. ISSTD. Okay, uh, I've got constant calls from people. It's really gone through the roof, the number of people wanting to volunteer to, to go in and stop these 
these rituals to save children, and they need this information and knowledge. You know, forewarned is forearmed. So um, it, what you're doing is invaluable, Judy, and I, I know we'll have you on again as things develop. Uh, any final words for the listeners? Uh, yes, just recognize that this is going on. This denial is the biggest problem we have, and I even denied it you know, uh, way back then. There was, when I got so discouraged with not being able to get this information, uh, you know, into trial, uh, I literally put all my information underneath the staircase and left it there for a couple of years because I couldn't deal with it because it was so hard because nobody believed anything that you were doing. But I think if you can just confront the fact that it is going on, that children are being abused, and we need to recognize who they are and try to do whatever we can to save them, uh, is is yes. is the biggest uh, factor that we can deal with. Well, thank you. God bless, Judy. It's been a wonderful show and interview. We'll have you back on, and uh, thank you for being with us. Thank you. I'd love to come back, and I sure appreciate everything you're doing, Kevin. I think you're just a fantastic person to do what you're doing. Okay, well, we do it together. Thank you, sister. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. okay. Bye for now. Bye. Judy Byanton, please get her book, 22 Faces, at Amazon, and put in a positive review. Uh, and for our book, MurderByDecree.com, for that matter. Uh, in closing, let me just remind you that next week, uh, as an example of what to do, we're going to have our team from Toronto, two folks come on, describing how they're being trained as Kamala sheriffs, the campaign they're going to uh, use to fight evictions among the poor of Toronto using direct action and common law warrants. And uh, we'll get into that next week with our, our two uh, friends from Toronto. Please tune in for that. It's an example of what to do, not just hearing about the problem, but putting it into action. Those direct action teams can be used in any way, including making citizen arrests of known child killers in the Catholic Church or outside it, and also stopping these satanic crimes. So please write to us, republicofcanata at gmail.com. Go to itccs.org, murderbydecree.com. And uh, a final note that um, one of the things that we continue to flag to people is this is a multinational program. We are working with people all over Europe now, especially in Eastern Europe where there's a new front opening up. Uh, Asia, Australia, we've got a group forming in India because these problems and who we're up against is global. And in the course of this work, there's a change coming. We are learning a higher consciousness, a recognition that we are moving into a new era where human beings are being freed from this matrix that has fed off us for many thousands of years. So it's a great and glorious time to be alive, folks. Do not lose hope. You're not alone. Write to us. Reach out. Canada at gmail.com. And tune in next week. Uh, there'll be a lot more to talk about. So until next week, brothers and sisters, stay strong and stay clear. This is Kevin Annett. Bye for now. Well, you know, Johnny always wore black, and he uh, he wore black because he identified with the the poor and the uh, and the, and, the, and the downtrodden. You can run on for a 